Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the radio show that goes all over the world looking for the most interesting people with something unusual but important to say. Today, we're going all the way to Oujda, Morocco. Well, not quite. My guest, Fatna Belushi, is from Oujda, Morocco, but she currently lives in the United States. She's a health coach and spiritual counselor. She's done improvisational jazz singing. She has a degree in Anglo-Irish theater from the University of Mohammed I in Oujda. But her latest accomplishment is this book I'm holding in my hand right now. It's called Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics, A Spiritual Journey into the Heart of Nutrition, into the Soul of Nutrition. So, Fatna, congratulations on your book. Thank you. All right. So, Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics, does that mean that only diabetics are allowed to use this book? Absolutely not. Anybody can use this book. It has all kinds of beautiful, nutritious and tasty, yummy is very important, recipes from Moroccan cuisine that will make you healthier. It will also prevent uh, any kind of inflammation. So that means it helps you stay healthy if you are already healthy. Interesting. So I I know that you've studied uh, the Weston Price Foundation theories of nutrition, and he thinks that too much processed carbohydrate is really, really bad for people at a whole lot of levels. And diabetes is sort of the first signal that tells you that you're not eating right. So maybe the people who aren't diabetic uh, will actually be a lot healthier if they uh, think about the kinds of issues that you raise in this cookbook. Yes, so I agree. Uh, the point of actual the actual book is actually to prevent inflammation before it happens. Okay, and... To do that, you don't have to completely give up carbohydrates like some of the paleo people, right? Yes, I think carbohydrates are very important because they do uh, give you energy. Also, um, you know, a lot of doctors have a very hard time uh, connecting with their, um, you know, with their clients, uh, with their patients, and they think it's really easy to give up um the carbohydrates or to slow down on eating them. And in my book, I offer actually a solution how to kick, uh, uh, to kick out, uh, uh, you know, your food, what I call almost like food addictions to sugar, because a lot of carbohydrates are mostly sugar. So, Interesting. Well, you mentioned uh, inflammation, and that's, of course, a, a big problem, especially as people get older. And so anti-inflammatories are very popular, and supposedly there are herbs and other uh, things that help with anti-inflammatory work. Uh, Do you have those kinds of herbs in this cookbook? Uh, What kind of herbs are they? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, different remedies, in fact. Um, A lot of spices that are really good uh, uh, healers for inflammation and also to uh, prevent inflammation into happening in the first place which is really the point of the book, as I said earlier. Uh, Turmeric, uh, a lot of, uh, like Moroccan cuisine, use a lot of turmeric and uh, uh, cinnamon and black pepper. um, And the combination of these uh, spices uh, actually help the body to stay healthy and prevent inflammation. Well, usually when people think of Moroccan cooking, they think of this really delicious and often very festive kind of cuisine that's famous among French gourmets because there are all of these crazy dishes like Bastila, which is Moroccan pigeon pie with nuts in it, 
and uh, what else? It's, it's like sweet and salty at the same time, which is very unusual. There are all sorts of uh, really delicious Moroccan dishes, but so many of them don't seem like the kind of thing that would be particularly good for diabetics. Like, for instance, couscous is made out of grain primarily, and Moroccans typically eat a lot of French bread. And then you have things like Bastila, which have the sugar. And then you have, of course, the national beverage, which is sugary mint tea, which is just full of sugar. And I could go on like this, but, you know, I, I have a friend, uh, Dr. Eric Beef, who's been on the show several times, who treats diabetes from his practice in Brussels, Belgium. And he seems to think that the Moroccans that he treats are actually, you know, eating a worse diet than Europeans. Um, so how, how did you sort of reconcile this and find a way to take this cuisine, Moroccan cuisine, which is famous for things other than being good for diabetics, and make it suddenly healthy? Yeah, I have to acknowledge and uh, make a statement that my book is not specifically for Moroccan cooking. Also, the Moroccan uh, cuisine have changed throughout the years, um, especially after the French uh, colonization. Um, so they, there is all kinds. There was a lot of uh, change in the diet for of the of the Moroccan people throughout the the ages. So uh, this is the traditional one, and I had to work somehow to make it uh, better uh, and and um, avoid uh, those mistakes and those um, not so healthy ch uh, Moroccan food choices. Um, also, my book is is uh, has also uh, some parts about it. Uh, for some healing remedies. There's also flower remedies that I use, uh, that I'm recommending uh, in my uh, book, The Back Flower Remedies. Uh, so it's not um, your regular Moroccan uh, cooking uh, book. So you stressed the healthy parts of the Moroccan cuisine and kind of avoided the unhealthy parts. So some of the healthy parts are what, like the fish? I remember, you know, I've been in Morocco and there's all kinds of fish. There are vegetables. And, and next to Ushta, there's Berkan, which produces, some people think, the best fruit and vegetables in the world. So let's see, there's fish, there's fruit and vegetables. What are some of the other healthy things in Moroccan cuisine? Yeah, even couscous, I would, uh, I would say it's healthy. Um, remember, I'm not trying to uh, completely avoid the Moroccan. In fact, I see a lot of value in the Moroccan cuisine, and it could be very healthy uh, for um, diabetics. And this is why I, I wrote this book. And But, yes, fish is... Um, I do have introduction uh, about different foods and what kind of benefits and nutrients it gives you. Every recipe, um, you know, I talk about uh, the ingredients, uh, the vegetables, what are good for, and uh, specifically uh, for diabetics. And then there's a spiritual side of it. You talk about this, the spiritual journey into the soul of nutrition. So what's the spiritual resonance of a, a cookbook that's aiming to provide delicious but also very healthy Moroccan cooking. Yeah, I find that the traditional uh, way of um, Moroccan cooking 
Uh, for example, they use all in season, seasonal uh, vegetables. They also uh, use um, uh, halal uh, uh, organic meat, uh, the way they raise the animals, the way they sacrifice the animals. Um, it's not very easy to take an, another life to sustain your life. Um, so the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he spent all his uh, his time teaching people how to uh, take a life of an animal to sustain one's life, and that is the spiritual part of the uh, of the book. Interesting, and, and there are also passages in the book, like there's some some uh, there's some poetry and some sort of flights of fancy that sound almost like out of the Sufi tradition in Morocco. Yeah, uh, I guess being Moroccan and having uh, spent most of my, uh, uh, you know, uh, childhood living there, and uh, it's, uh, you know, spirituality is a uh, is the bread of of the other life too, as well as the uh, you know, the food that we eat every day. So um, uh, it's in the air that we breathe in Morocco. Okay, a spiritual cookbook. And how, how easy is it to use these recipes? Like, can somebody who's not really that uh, into cooking uh, figure out how to make some of these things? Or do you have to be a, a real uh, whiz, a gourmet chef to, to use this book? I'm glad you asked that question because when I wrote the book, I actually had the American audience in, in mind. So, for example, couscous, uh, you don't have to... Uh, use uh, the two-part couscousier that most uh, Moroccans have to use to make couscous. So I had to tweak and make it easy for Americans to be able to make couscous without having to buy special gadgets. And I'm all into minimal uh, minimalism, so the less is more. And I wanted to make it very, very easy for anybody to do it. And it's... Uh, it's pretty precise and it's very straightforward and very clear as far as I know. So you can actually make this delicious Moroccan food using the equipment that you probably already have. You don't need to make a special trip to Fez, Morocco to buy the special couscousier. That's too bad. Uh, if you had to go to Morocco, that would be a great excuse to go there. Yes, you can go if you want to, but I don't want to make people, I don't want to make them uh, make it too hard for them to do it if they want to. And so you've taught cooking before. I think you've made uh, Moroccan food, taught people how to make Moroccan food at some cooking exhibitions, like at a library once and places like that, some some uh, co-ops and, and things like that. Do you find that Americans uh, like this food? Are they? Do many of them already know about it, or is it new to them? No, I had uh, actually a lot of success, people showing up and having a great time. I also, when I'm making my own uh, food, when I'm uh, cooking, you know, doing the the cooking lesson i'm telling them stories i have some incense i have some spiritual gnawa music playing in the background and i you know after the class everybody comes and most some of them were in morocco and they they love to remember you know the times and they would tell me stories after the class and so i guess you enjoy the uh cooking and the teaching and and the writing how, how long has this book been in the works Oh, this book has been <laughs> forever. In fact, it started that I wanted to uh, write a book for my children. 
uh, cookbook because I wanted to uh, for them to keep the recipes uh, for when they grow up. And so I had all kinds of recipes, but then I kind of started to think about uh, a little bit about my life. And I started thinking about how I grew up with two diabetic parents and uh, I was very aware of that when I was a kid. So I wanted to prevent, um, you know, I wanted to do something about to make people be aware. And for myself, I wanted to eat healthy. You know, I want to, to pre prevent myself from, from being uh, di diabetic. So I had to write a health book for me first and for my kids. <laughs> and is this book sort of part of your healing practice too? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about your, your healing. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this book is also a part of my healing um, practice and also my healing journey. You know, um, after uh, a few um, things that happened in my life, I started like searching about what is really the meaning of life and uh, I had to uh, revisit my own life and that's how I started thinking about how I grew up and with two diabetic parents uh, I was very aware and I and I, I said I was gonna be a I wanted to do something good like I wanted to um, to write about my journey and so uh, for my healing uh, I had to I had to learn a lot of things. Uh, I uh, experimented and learned about different uh, therapies, uh, herbs, uh, flower back flower remedies. I even got into astrology, and I I was uh, learning about you know that some stars could affect or. Um, some people who are born and there are certain stars can be uh, uh, can have like a, a certain uh, uh, predisposition to uh, uh, some uh, diseases or uh, uh, disorders if you will um, and uh, that's how I got into um, like healing myself and then I started healing people and through healing people I also healed myself and so I started to think about this oneness that we are all one like by healing the others we also heal ourselves by healing ourselves we heal others well these days if you start talking that way, you might get accused of medical misinformation. You might get deplatformed because the CDC and the WHO may not have recommended things like uh, your healing techniques, um, nutrition as a way of staying healthy, things like that. Uh, so maybe you could offer some thoughts about what it's like to be an alternative healer and somebody who's advocating healing through nutrition in this kind of bizarre COVID-19 era where anything outside the WHO CDC guidelines is called medical misinformation and you can be censored and deplatformed for uh, talking about it. I think this is a great time for people to go all the way out and and call it the way it is. It's uh it's misinformation from the CDC, it's misinformation from the elite, the people who want to keep the power. It is uh, 
So it is up to the people to go out all the way out. In fact, I do. I will not like any doctor who says, by the way, I am not an anti-vax. Well, too bad because you're, you're not going to be my doctor because people who are trying to just be very careful about being de-platform or just you're not telling the whole truth. No, you got to tell the whole truth. Otherwise, you are you are still complying. And I do not approve of complicity because it can really uh, damage someone. And you have to be very careful. Uh, this is the time to be all the way out because the more you comply, the worse it is. Well, if we're going to go all the way here and really uh, piss off the authorities, maybe we should say that your cookbook could perhaps improve people's chances of surviving the COVID epidemic because if people are in good shape and they're not uh, pre-diabetic and overweight from gulping down all kinds of junk food and too much processed carbs and things like that, but instead they're eating the healthy stuff in your cookbook, the fish and the vegetables and so on, and the herbs and the anti-inflammatories, all that kind of stuff actually theoretically, according to the science, should help them be less likely to be seriously harmed by COVID. But I guess you're probably not allowed to say that. Well, I would say you say what you think is right and you do the right thing. You do not worry about what somebody might say about you because um that's not how we're designed to do. If you know that your work is very important, you should not worry about anything else. You do the right thing, and that's it. Okay, well, you have a very different view from another Muslim woman who is a professional Muslim woman who makes her living by doing comedy that she gets gigs because she's the token Muslim woman. That's Mona Sheikh. She was on the show screaming and yelling at me because she thought I was an anti-vaxxer. Now, I got a bunch of feedback from listeners who said, wow, this woman is, she's really putting out a bad example for Muslim women. She's going to create Islamophobia and maybe sexism too. So you're technically, you would be considered a Muslim woman too. So what's, what's your reaction to, uh, to that and to uh, the sort of varieties of opinions that we have in the Islamic world about the whole COVID crisis and these related health issues? Uh, if people were healthy, and that's why, that's my point, is when people are healthy, they don't have to worry about so-called viruses. Uh, viruses are part of the ecology. They are part of life. Allah. They are part of life. Allahu al-hayyu ya qayyum. Life is everywhere. Um, that's why Jesus, and happy Merry Christmas, by the way, Jesus Jesus, he can bring the dead. He can bring life. And he can bring the dead to life. From death to life. Why? Think about it. Because this Hayu Ya Qayyum is everywhere there is life. These people are pushing. Biden pushing death and darkness. We don't go there. That's... That's not true. There is no such thing. They are playing on people's darkest fears. Everything is like that. So that Mona, whatever who, her name is, Sheikh, you said? Yeah. 
Oh. So, so she wasn't she wasn't exactly your role model. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it seems to me though that the uh, Muslim community here in the United States probably could use a little bit more focus on uh, natural healing and uh, spirituality and the kind of nutritional approaches that you have in your cookbook. From what I've observed, you know, a lot of Muslim immigrants here are doctors and they're many of them, not all of them are into the mainstream medical paradigm. There are a lot of engineers who similarly have the same kind of outlook on life. And if you go to fast breaking events and things like that, you go eat Muslim food. It's, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's tastier maybe than certain kinds of bland American food, but uh, some of it isn't really like, you know, carefully sort of selected for organic ingredients and, and put together sort of the way you like to, to cook. So do you think the American Muslim community needs to get more on board with these kinds of alternative approaches? Yes, because um, in Islam, you can't like uh, put a needle in yourself with all these, actually the ingredients are already haram. That means forbidden in Islam. The vaccines are grown in baby fetal, uh, in, in fetal cells. Those are aborted babies. And uh, the gelatin from pork. And, you know, who wants to uh, inject themselves with such filthy and bad karma uh, ingredients that, are, that have not proven to be actually effective? They are not. There is no, there is no, um, no proof that they actually work throughout history. In fact, there is proof that they hurt, that they that they harm people. So there is no proof of that, and I can understand why. Why the result of something that's so yucky, that's so bad? Do you think people? the result is going to be uh, good? No, it's not. And, and it's proven over and over again. People have to open their eyes and, and their heart mostly to see the truth. Okay, so so nutrition and spirituality, um, herbal anti-inflammatories, uh, good fresh air and exercise, these are the ways to be healthy, not uh, sticking needles into yourself and listening to the medical engineers and technological prognosticators. We have been given everything on this planet. This is it. This is it. This is God's kingdom. This is earth that's going to be here forever. When you leave, it's here. The earth is beautiful. We are given everything we need. God gave us everything we need to be healthy to be happy, but it's our resistance to the truth. It's our resistance to to the we, we don't our resistance. We uh, humans have to always uh, create problems where there are no problems because of this resistance to surrender to the to uh, to the reality of God. That is a beautiful and. This resistance creates a lot of suffering, and it's coming from a very deep e ego that wants to possess and wants to be the God apart from God. But there is no God but God. La ilaha illallah. No God but God. So 
when God had created this world and made its own law and gave us this beautiful nature, we live with nature, we breathe viruses, the trees breathe uh, carbon, we, and then they give us um, oxygen just in the right amount for us to be happy and healthy. This is it. This is heaven and it is now. Okay, well, that's a, a good place to leave it with. So people can find your book, Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics, on Amazon, unfortunately, for want of a better <laughs> alternative. And how can they contact you if they're interested in your healing services? I have actually a Facebook page. It's called Instrument of Love Healing Services. And uh, there's a description there, and they can contact me on that page. Uh, they can message me if they want, and uh, they can like my page, and uh, they're welcome to try my services. I think they will be very happy and healed, inshallah. Inshallah. Well, I can actually testify to having seen you uh, heal people. There was that Richard Gage event in Chicago where uh, you apparently really impressed uh, somebody that you healed. And uh, I've also experienced the uh, roll-in, walk-out healing method where I could hardly walk uh, from hip pain. And then with some energy healing, just in a few minutes, I was walking just fine. So whatever, I don't know how it works, but it does work. So that's Instrument of Love Healing Services on Facebook. Thank you so much. Fatna Belushi, author of Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics. Um, God bless uh, and good luck with the book and look forward to talking again. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Rufus and Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. Half five it is. Uh, the song is Ain't Nobody. Drive time in the UK, the northwest of the UK. Light drizzle. That's par for the course. Speaking of par for the course, before we welcome my great friend, and I do mean great friend Kevin Barrett back to the program, let me give you the, the cliff note. The cliff note. It's an amazing story, this, if, if, if it's true. I work on the basis that I just don't have a clue as to what's going on. Look, on August 25th last year, very bizarre story. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was talking to a guy from the Daily Caller website, which is allegedly a right wing. I've never read anything on the Daily Caller website. Uh, not that that matters, right? And he was talking about running into danger. I'm running into danger, he says, because there was a lot of unrest in Kenosha. I hope I pronounced that right. Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha, Wisconsin because of the shooting of a black man called Jacob Blake. Tensions were high, right? So this guy on August 25th, while written is talking to a reporter from the Daily Caller, and he says, I'm going to get involved because people are getting injured. I have a rifle. He had a rifle on his back. If there's somebody hurt, he says, I'm running into harm's way. I also have my medical kit, he says. This is some story. This A couple of hours after that, the guy from the Daily Caller found himself wrapping his T-shirt around the head of a man that Kyle Rittenhouse had just shot in the head, obviously. So Rittenhouse ran away, and as he did run away, he was chased. 
somebody hit him with a skateboard. Rittenhouse shot that guy dead. Somebody pointed a handgun at him and Rittenhouse shot him in the arm. Now, the trial has just ended and it's international fascination with this. Did the guy act in self-defence as he was attacked first seemingly or was he reckless in going into this area with a gun and did he provoke the violence? Now, the jury continued to deliberate and um, who better to ask than the legend of Madison, Wisconsin himself, the academic, the broadcaster, the writer, and uh, an expert on theology, I would say. Another string to his bow. Let's welcome back to the program, truthjihad.com, my friend Kevin Barrett. Kevin, welcome back. Hey, thank hey, you, Richie. Th- Love talking with you. Uh, as always, mate, me too. The feeling is mutual. What a story this is. It, it almost reads a bit like a film script. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe any of it. I just don't know. But I do know that um, I've got kind of caught up in the last couple of days the international media attention is is i think it's as big you know even going back to when oj simpson was on was on trial what's really going on here in 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 your view kevin give us the lowdown on what's happening there well i think it's been hyped because it pits these two sides against each other we've seen a divide and conquer operation mounted against the U.S. working class, or really just about everybody who works for a living, as opposed to the oligarchs. They don't want us to notice that they're picking our pockets, so they want us to get all excited about culture wars issues and sexual identity politics and 12 flavors of gender pronouns and all this sort of nonsense. So this particular incident was perfect for this divide and conquer thing because they had the, you know, it all came out of uh, Black Lives Matter protests uh, over the shooting of Jacob Blake. And they pitted, you know, these people who were out there protesting and some of them rioting against the people who were uh, horrified by the riots and wanted to protect the businesses and property and so on, like Kyle Rittenhouse. And so they get, basically have a new civil war going here. And the emotions that get caught up when people identify really strongly with one side or the other make this a perfect kind of a, a Hollywood spectacle to enthrall the masses and get them extremely emotional. And once again, uh, it's bread and circuses so that they don't notice that the banksters just sold, stole maybe somewhere upwards of six, seven, eight, maybe upwards of $10 trillion with uh, this uh, COVID transfer of wealth to the upper echelon. Uh, and so we have these bread and circuses now every day, uh, the Rittenhouse trial and so on, and maybe there'll be more riots when the verdict comes in, and we can all stay hypnotized by that and uh, not notice that we're being taken to the cleaners. We'll talk about that in a minute, the prospect of more riots. That makes a great deal of sense to me, because I always leave room for the genuine possibility that because of the media hype, because of social media, because of everything, I leave room for the possibility is that a young man might have lost the run of himself, might have lost, I don't mean lost his mind, but lost the ability to be reasonable and ran into an area with a gun. I can buy that. However, the independent media is an interesting place and there are some men and some women and some of them, we, we like them because they're, they're, they're pretty shrewd. They look at these things and they say, more often than not, the entire thing is one staged event. Do you have any sympathy for that? Sure, because the media lies to us so often, and what we're fed always is turned into some kind of a spectacle or almost a theatrical kind of uh, good versus bad story. Uh, the, the way that they, they take 
messy reality and turn it into narratives is so artificial anyway that, you know, every now and then we have to suspect that, you know, maybe they're staging the whole thing. You know, we do know that all sorts of very powerful and compelling, you know, supposed news stories were staged completely. The classic example is the uh, that uh, torches uh, march that the women did after uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew Edward Bernays had figured out a way to double the profits of the cigarette manufacturers by brainwashing women into smoking. And he knew that you couldn't talk them into smoking rationally, so instead uh, he created this Torches of Freedom march where he had the women go out in a big throng for the cameras and light their cigarettes, their torches of freedom. And he knew from his work with his nephew, or his, his uncle, Sigmund Freud, that uh, the cigarette is like a smaller cigar, right? So it's like a slightly yeah. smaller phallus. So the women were seizing the phallus symbolically, and this is all going on in their unconscious minds. They're being brainwashed below the level of consciousness to double the profits of the cigarette manufacturers. And so... That was staged. That was not a real Torches of Freedom march by feminists. It was created by Edward Bernays. And undoubtedly, there have been dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of other such uh, PR stunts that were totally concocted. They were not just actual happenings in the street being covered by the media. They were created to produce a particular story in the media. So, yeah, I do sympathize with those people, but I don't think they were right about this particular case. Yeah, me neither. But but both of us stand to be proven wrong. It, it, it might happen. Wow, you brought up torches of freedom. I've not thought of that for many, many years. What a great analogy. What a great example. You've got the professor, the professorial head on you this afternoon, uh, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Fascinating. I'll tell you what fascinates me. As a guy who started off, like everybody else in radio, in local radio, I was sent down the local courthouse on Fridays because that's when the court was in session in Waterford and sat there and sometimes was very amused by the the very kind of misdemeanor type crimes that were being heard about in the court. I took, you know, I took a real fascination in the reporting of court cases. Now, I, I find fascinating. I, I was watching a bit of Tucker Carlson the other day. Now, the jury had retired, fair enough. You might say Tucker's entitled now to give his own opinion because the jury has retired and they won't hear him. But that being said, even before the case began, and even during the case, the the commentariat in in the American media are saying outlandish stuff, Kevin. Now, look, I'm the ultimate advocate of free speech, and I'm not going to say but, you know, responsibly, because that sounds terrible. I think around court cases, I think you have to be very careful about what you say and how you say it, you know, in, in an effort not to prejudice any jury. I suppose I've gone on, I've gone around the, the bushes now and all I had to say to you really was, is there any chance in hell that this guy, uh, could, Rittenhouse could get a fair trial? Really? That's, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think that it, it looks like the judge is trying to do his job, uh, and, you know, whether trials in the American judicial system are ever going to be fully fair, that's a, a philosophical question, I guess. But, yeah, the media uh, inflaming people's passions around this case does make it a lot harder for the trial to be genuinely fair. And not only do these jurors have to worry about, or the, the people, I guess the judge has to worry about the jurors getting all kinds of messages from the media, uh, including emotional inflaming messages from whichever side of the cultural divide maybe they or their family members happen to be on, but 
Also, it's possible that these jury members might be concerned that if they deliver the wrong verdict, uh, more riots will break out and more people might die and it would all be their fault. Um, it's There are those who think that may have happened in some other uh, trials. So they, they have quite a load on their shoulders. And I don't know. I mean, are we allowed to say what we think about a particular trial? Uh, and as, you know, as alternative journalists, can we report on it? Of course. So I guess the, the big time, big money journalists have the right to do that as well. But uh, the, the kind of cheap exploitation approach to it is uh, seems a little morally dubious to me. And then at the end of the day, uh, you know, whether this was a fair trial or not is probably going to be debated for a long time. For years. And before we move away from this, and I might ask you for an opinion on Julius Jones. Now, if you're not following that, you can tell me and we can move on to something else. But I'm fascinated by that story as somebody who spent some years in my late teens and 20s as an anti-capital punishment campaigner. And you know this because I told you before, but you made a very good point. Irrespective of the decision reached by the jury, there's going to be violence, isn't there, Kevin, after this? Well, probably so. Um, I would guess that there's going to be this weird sort of like left versus right, or I guess it's it's more sort of Antifa versus Proud Boys kind of theatrical yeah. violence that pops up in places like Portland and other places these days, which I don't really understand it. You know, when I was coming of age, you know, I was young enough to, you know, have those surges of testosterone that might get me interested in street fighting. Uh, back in those days, I don't remember anything like this, really. I guess there were some cases where the hippies versus the hard hats were involved in you know, Vietnam-era protests. I was a little young for those protests, though. So when I was at South Africa protests, or even when I more or less participated in some Rodney King protests that turned into riots in San Francisco, I was not part of the riots, but I was out there doing the protests. I had a chip on my shoulders against police at that time uh, after having been uh, abused by uh, cops for no particular reason and, and actually permanently injured. I still have a carpal tunnel from the, the very tight handcuffing and dragging me around for an hour or half an hour to an hour. Uh, I, I was uh, very much part of that demonstration, but I don't remember counter demonstrators who were coming to fight. Like I never saw any case personally of two different sides uh, of a political dispute coming out in public to fight each other, especially, and then having cops, you know, not even be involved. For me, it was always like basically cops versus demonstrators. And if a demonstrator is violent, then you assume he's an undercover cop. <laughs> but now the rules have changed, apparently. So this is a whole new world. And, you know, I'm not sure if I like it. Me neither. Kevin Barrett is our guest, truthjihad.com. I'm going to ask you about the, the trend in Europe for locking up those who have refused the COVID jabs. I kind of have a feeling I know what you'll say, but our listeners will be very keen to hear Kevin Barrett, who's a, a, an academic college professor, writer, author, uh, as I said, theologian, no doubt. I, I would I would give Kevin that uh, moniker as well. And uh, before we talk about that, though, I'm fascinated by this story because there's been a trend in the last few years of big emotional documentaries, real-life documentaries. Netflix have... I've probably started the ball rolling with making a murderer, which I got very much. I invested myself big time in that story. And I also looked at a lot of the paperwork myself privately and all of that. But anyway, um, a guy called Julius Jones is set to be um, executed this evening. 
well, it'll be this evening here, it'll be four o'clock in, in Oklahoma. He was sentenced to uh, death for killing a gentleman called Paul Howell during a carjacking back in 2002. He's always maintained he's innocent. Some people would say, don't they all, right? Um, it's desperate stuff at the moment. They're waiting to hear from the governor of Oklahoma there. School kids walked out of Oklahoma City high schools across Oklahoma today in support of clemency for this gentleman, Mr. Jones, Julius Jones. This is a very emotional case, of course, as well. Uh, in October, so only last month, he was among five people who won stays of execution from a three-judge panel of the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Celebrities including Kim Kardashian, who's probably one of the most instantly recognisable TV personalities in the world, have all come out in favour of him. And we go back to the documentaries. ABC did a did, did, did a documentary called The Last Defence in 2018, and it went viral, and more than 6 million people signed a, a petition to free Julius, or put him back, at least for the moment, back to life imprisonment. There's so many different aspects of this, Kevin. You know, the first one being like, when you set out to make a documentary, now I know you've been involved in documentaries, I know you have. I have as well. Documentary makers are very subjective, aren't they? They usually are very subjective. So whoever made this documentary, The Last Defence, is convinced that Julius Jones is innocent. And you talked about Edward Bernays a few minutes ago. We know that documentarians, we know that TV companies can be very persuasive in terms of how they film and particularly how they edit their documentaries. Um, so, but everybody gets involved and we all feel sorry for Julius and we think he's innocent. But the fact is he might not be innocent. How do you see this case and the kind of phenomenon of, of Netflix type uh, documentaries declaring somebody to be innocent and then all the viewers getting wrapped up in it? I tell you what, it's an interesting one for, um, for a sociologist, I suppose, to look at. Yes, I guess the closest I've seen to anything like that would be the thin blue line which was uh, about one of these cases where the cops got the wrong guy. And, what, you know, once the cops and their friend, the DA, latch onto somebody, they never let go. They're like a pit bull. And even if evidence comes in that should change their mind, they stick with that initial assessment of the person's guilt, and they just see their job as convicting the guy. And so that does mean that there are uh, predictably uh, going to be a certain percentage of people convicted of crimes who are innocent. And it, it has to do with the way the system works. The system, of course, also uh, cannot afford a jury trial for even a small percentage of people who are uh, being uh, prosecuted. So they have to pressure people to take plea bargains. And to do that, they grossly overcharge people. And again, the, the police and prosecutor side of the establishment sees their job as just solving the case by fingering somebody and making sure that person gets convicted. Uh, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if Julius Jones really is innocent. And then again, I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't. I haven't seen the documentary. I haven't studied the case. Uh, and even people who do study these cases sometimes have a hard time really knowing what's going on. Um, but I guess in the, in the big picture, you know, two, two issues there would be one, the death penalty is a pretty, a uh, hard thing to do over when you suddenly find evidence that the person was innocent. So the presumption should be, obviously, we don't want to be executing people uh, in that kind of situation where there's any doubt whatsoever. And uh, and then another one is that this whole hysteria right now around uh, these kinds of cases, it seems to me there's a bit of a, a kind of a, a one-sided uh, reaction uh, in, in the two, two sides of the culture war, one side, sort of the, the liberal 
and more and more sort of the establishment side is obsessed with historical racial injustices. So they're very sympathetic to uh, black uh, people who are abused one way or another, accused of crimes that they may or may not have committed, uh, shot by police in arguably dubious circumstances and things like that. Uh, and then on the other side, you have the conservatives and the white identitarians. Uh, some of these people are white people who feel like they're losing their country. Demographically, they're about to become a minority when they were an 80% majority as recently as 1980. And so they're freaked out about that. And then they also uh, know and in some cases speak out about the fact that the crime rate is extremely uh, sort of racially charged in that uh, the African-American community uh, is responsible for uh, a, a wild, uh, wildly uh, over-representation, uh, uh, over-represented over preponderance of certain kinds of crimes, especially street crime, in the same way that the Jewish community is wildly overrepresented at the top echelons of the criminal cartels that run the mainstream media, uh, the financial sector, and indeed organized crime itself. Now, the, what I just said is utterly taboo. You're not supposed to say it, but it's just basic fact. Look, if you study crime statistics, unless they're being completely fudged, which some of my friends in the Nation of Islam think, uh, the, the black community is really a big-time hotbed of crime, and I think a lot of people know that, and other uh, communities don't want to live in, in or close to majority black neighborhoods because of this, and this is unspoken in, in, because you're not allowed to say it in public in America uh, but even all the people, all the, the non-black people who don't say it, uh, flee black neighborhoods because of it. So this is something that I think maybe needs to be talked about. And I personally blame this problem of uh, black crime on the folks who destroyed the black family back around circa 1960, uh, when the, the welfare laws changed to basically bribe black women to have children out of wedlock. And suddenly you went from an you know, 80 or 90 percent legitimacy rate down to the current maybe 25, 30 percent legitimacy rate. Uh, and that leads to children being raised in horrible circumstances. And you end up with a community with all of these pathologies. Let's face that reality and let's try and fix it. Yeah, we had you speak about welfare law changes. We for, for a long time in Ireland, unmarried mothers or single women who had children were financially taken care of, you know. Uh, for being in in that situation, of course, they would have been white Irish women, but that's another story for another day. I'm not getting into the Jewish oligarchs and the Jewish people at the top of TV and banks because we've had these arguments too many times before. I respect your opinions, of course. Kevin Barrett is our guest. Tell you what, Kevin, it's getting spooky. I'm quite I'm closer to Austria and Germany than you are, my friend. Um, earlier this week, people who have who have, to this point, refused a COVID jab. They've been told by the Austrian government to stay at home or face fines of a 1,400 euro. Now, it's one thing to say, very difficult to enforce that. It's a lot of hot air. But the fact is, they've, they've put it, they've said it. You know, they've declared it. It has been decreed. Uh, we could, there's a million adjectives I could use. This is beyond, we, we've never lived through anything like this. At least I haven't. What do you think? What do you think when you hear that stuff coming out of Europe? Stay home. No participation in society for you if you haven't had the job. Well, that's completely insane. My friend Jimmy Walter had to flee the United States after he was the one and only philanthropist who donated significant money to the 9-11 Truth Movement circa 2005. 
and he got threatened, and he had to flee for his life to Vienna, Austria. And now he might have to flee right back to Florida, <laughs> where he was before, because uh, he, he's facing a, a lockdown uh, future now. It's, uh, there are a lot of good reasons why people might be leery of getting the jab. Um, now, you know, people who are over 80 and or have major cor- comorbidities, well, maybe that wouldn't be such a great idea for them. But for uh, may, probably the majority of the population, I think, has good reason to think twice about these jabs, because the fact is we just don't know what the long-term effects might be. And there are a lot of indicators that suggest that they might not be so good. Um, if, if, And especially since the vaccines start to wear off after six months, maybe a little less even, uh, and you're just going to have to get boosted every six months for the rest of your life. And if each shot uh, has, say, a 1 in 10,000 chance of causing uh, a de- death through some kind of heart disease or circulatory system issue, that may not sound like much, but if the whole population is getting boosted every six months, it could really add up. And that might explain why the uh, all-cause mortality statistics seem to show that highly vaccinated populations ha- are having slightly higher all-cause mortality right now than less vaccinated populations. And like, and the highly vaccinated populations are not even doing better overall uh, with COVID than the less vaccinated populations. And, you know, everything I'm saying right now could be called medical misinformation by YouTube. Oh, it isn't. It's a fact. <laughs> what, what you're saying is a fact. And you're applying your critical thinking faculties to this as a university professor. And I know that you've taken a more moderate approach to the whole COVID thing and the vaccines than many other people, including myself in the independent media. So it's pretty honorable of you to make those points. Yes, the vaccinated populations are, are doing, are not doing well or not doing as well as the unvaccinated in terms of overall mortality for different things. The VAERS, V-A-E-R-S system you've got there in America for reporting the yellow card system here indicates that the jobs are causing harm. So fair play to you for, for, for saying that, Kevin. And yet they are pulling out all the stops to coerce people into having these jabs. So again, using those critical thinking faculties, university professor hat on you, there's something very wrong then, isn't there? There sure is. And it makes you wonder, you know, what's wrong? I mean, there are basically two explanations. There's the, uh, the relatively innocent explanation and the not so innocent one. The innocent explanation is that we're just living through a period of extreme groupthink and mass hysteria triggered by fear of death. The media has been terrorizing everybody into uh, being afraid of COVID and afraid that they and their loved ones will die of COVID. And we all know from terror management theory, uh, which is a branch of psychology that looks at people uh, becoming anxious, experiencing anxiety when they're reminded of their own mortality, that uh, people can be stampeded into all sorts of irrational behavior when they are in fear for their life, when they're reminded of the fact that someday they themselves will die. So that's the innocent explanation. It's a case of total mass hysteria. Uh, and these people are latching on to vaccines as the salvation for this scary, scary situation where we might all die. Uh, and if anybody doesn't uh, reinforce their belief that, vaccines are going to save the day, 
then those people are going to be demonized. So, so that's one innocent explanation for what we're seeing. And of course, the, the paranoid conspiracy theorist explanation is that there's some kind of nefarious reason why the powers that be want to get everybody jabbed. You know, it, it's not science. The science would not tell you to do this. The science would tell you to jab the people with uh, comorbidities or the old people and not everybody else. In fact, the science would tell you you want the kids to get COVID. You want to spread COVID as fast as you possibly can among the little kids and the super healthy people under 30 and build up a long-lasting herd immunity. But no, instead we have this insane push to vaccinate everybody and then some. And, and so it's natural that the uh, the more paranoid people among us, including some of my own friends, uh, are completely convinced that there's a terrible, nefarious agenda here. It's depopulation. They're going to kill everybody. Everybody who gets vaxxed is going to die. And I find that personally to be highly unlikely. Uh, but Me too. Me yeah, too. Yeah. Or, or maybe they're going to be uh, sterilized. And that's maybe a little less unlikely. Or, you know, have, at least have their fertility uh, impaired a little bit. Should I should I qualify that? I think it's 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 a bit far fetched for right now, but I think there is a longer term depopulation agenda. I believe this. I'm not saying it's true because I can't do that, but I do believe it. I I I, I look at the climate change agenda and I I I add I add it all up. The things they want us to do, all of these solutions for these problems, these you know the climate crisis or the COVID crisis, the solutions are basically dystopian realities creating dystopian realities where people, where, where their movement is very limited, where they are tracked 24-7, where we, we live under a new judicial system of social crediting. All of these things are terrible. You know, we don't heat our homes in the winter just as, you know, as well as we as we could do. Climate lockdowns they're advocating now, and they are. They're looking at them in India, and they have been mentioned by the, by the um, World Health Organization. So I think they do want to do that, Kevin. I think they do want to get rid of lots and lots and lots of people. I do believe these mRNA and later these DNA jabs are not meant to be good for us. And I think the whole spike protein thing where, you know, ultimately you get these jabs and then next year or the year after a fairly innocuous infection is airborne. Um, but your body reacts to it in a way that's very bad for you. Too many really qualified epidemiologists have said that to me on my program, and they're just as qualified as you were in your field. So I, I really do believe it, but I don't believe that they're so stupid as to give everyone a jab now that's going to kill them. So I'm, I'm with you on that. But I think, I think it is really, really, really nefarious. And, uh, and I don't know what to do about it. I mean, when, when they start talking about imposing draconian measures like telling you you can't leave your home if you don't take their their job listen i wouldn't want to insult anybody that ever you know that was ever rounded up and put in a concentration camp they did it to the japanese they did they, they did it to jews they did it to many peoples i've not experienced that but it sounds like we're not far away from it kevin of taking the unhealthy and putting them in a well in maybe not in a big camp with lots of barbed wire but putting them somewhere else leper colonies almost for the unjabbed that's the sort of stuff that's coming to my mind now. And I'm not overtly paranoid. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I guess uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> it, <laughs> with, with what's going on now, uh, we should all be pretty paranoid, really. Uh, and yeah, I, I agree with you. There's very likely a depopulation agenda at work. I interviewed Kevin Galloway. Uh, I think his book might even be called The Depopulation Agenda. 
and he makes a very strong case that it's been going on for decades and decades since World War II. The bankster elites got together and recognized the Malthusian problem they faced with population growth and research consumption threatening uh, the ecosystem stability. So they started doing things like dosing water with fluoride uh, and uh, otherwise poisoning people in the West to reduce their fertility. And they also did all sorts of things, nefarious things in, in the third world as well. And so those people would be expected maybe to be upping the ante right now uh, with the global warming hysteria and the population uh, of the planet being what it is. So I don't think it's really particularly outlandish to hypothesize that something like that could be going on. I would expect it would be like the Dan Brown novel and, and the film they made out of it, Inferno, where the Inferno virus, which we first think is going to kill everybody, turns out, no, it's just going to sterilize nine out of ten people. So maybe that's maybe COVID will maybe sterilize. I would, I, it might just reduce fertility further, just like some of these other agents, including things they put in plastics and, uh, and fluoride and things like that have already done. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and it might kill a certain number of people too, of course. Yeah. And it might explain why they seem almost, um, rabidly determined. I would say rabid in their determination to vaccinate pregnant women, women who are already pregnant. I mean, normally they wouldn't give a paracetamol. They wouldn't give anodin or, um, you know, robitussin. They wouldn't give to a pregnant woman, but, but they're really pushing uh, this job. It's always fascinating to talk to, to you, Kevin. I always mention truth at jihad.com. Is there somewhere else I should mention? Thanks for your thoughts on Rittenhouse, by the way. It'll be interesting to see that verdict come on. Where should people find you? I know they know, but in case they are new to Professor Kevin Barrett, where should they go? Uh, first, truthjihad.com, as you mentioned, and look at my Substack. Maybe click on the subscribe at Substack button. I put out a lot of stuff on Substack. And then I also publish it at UNS, uh, the UNS review, UNZ.com, which does have some stuff that uh, people, including myself, find offensive, but also has some amazingly good stuff as well. Kevin, I love having you on. Regards to Rabia, by the way. Uh, Godspeed to you, and I look forward to next time. Thanks, Richie. <laughs> Appreciate it. Bye for now, Kevin. Bye-bye.